This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The pandemic has upended many routines, the way we work and the way we connect with others. We wear masks, wash our hands a lot more than pre-COVID times, and disinfect surfaces incessantly. But there is one hygiene habit which has become less popular during the pandemic, and that is showering. A recent British survey found 17% of people have abandoned daily showers. And judging by social media, many people here in Canada and in the U.S. have done the same. It's a practice dermatologist Dr. Sandy Scott Nicky has been advocating for years, since showering every day can strip the skin of its natural oils. She's also been very vocal about the dangers of all the skincare products we use, one of the main focuses of her book, Beyond Soap. Dr. Scott Nicky is the founding director of the Bay Dermatology Center. She spoke with Libby on Wednesday in a segment which prompted a lot of calls. I shower, like, I, you see, I'm in my office, so I see a lot of patients, so I, um, I'm, I'm probably, you know, there's some exposure there. I, I do shower probably every other day, but I, the same part of the thing we've talked about before is I don't wash my whole body, right? I just wash underarms and the groin, sort of the bits, as we call it. The bits. But, um, yeah, and I, you know, I, and I'm very fast, I'm not too hot, and, and I don't use real soap, I use cleansers. But I find it's really fascinating. I was just reading a little bit before before I got on here. Like, there's such a conversation now about this. A lot of people, you know, what's really interesting is a lot of people are are just showering less because they're not going out, they're not getting dressed to go to work, etc. But what they're finding is that they feel better. They their skin feels better. They're less dry. Their hair feels healthier. I mean, you know, we've talked about this. I talked about this in my book. Showering and is and you said hygiene. I would argue that it's not showering and bathing is not hygiene. Hygiene is about decreasing the transmission of disease, which is washing your hands. Washing your body and hair is more about self care and social norms. I mean, obviously, if you have skin disease or acne and things like that, it's it's important to to clean. And if you're wearing sunscreen and you're feeling you're outdoor with pollution, it's important to to shower that stuff off. But the act of a daily shower is is not really about health, and that's kind of what I talk about in my book. Okay, well that's that's interesting. I just use personal hygiene. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. that's what the term has become. It's it's uh, you know how how you make sure that uh, you know you smell nice and all of that. Right. Well, you know, I've learned a new term as well because I was reading uh, there was an article also in the New York Times last week about this about people showering less. So there's a term called ablution, which is the act of washing oneself. And uh, I didn't know that. Um, some other interesting facts about showering is one eight-minute shower takes 17 gallons of water. That's right. It's also doing it yeah. less is better for the environment. Ablution totally. is, is almost a biblical term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, and then the other fact that I learned was, uh, which I think I read years ago, but um, these things are just becoming more mainstream also about the climate change aspect or the the environmental aspect of showering every day. A five-minute, running the water for five minutes is similar to uh, running a light bulb, a 60-watt light bulb for 14 hours. So I think, you know, there's a bigger thing just about hygiene and what you're putting on your skin and also what's going down the drain and out into the environment, right? And all the plastic bottles. I mean, there's so many things to, to, to you know, point to the fact that daily showers are not good for our skin, not good for the environment, not good for energy consumption, water consumption. The list goes on and on. Um, but it's going to be hard to convince most a lot of people because it's become a social norm and we like to smell and feel good. My husband showers every day, washes his yeah. hair every day. I know. His hair, what's left of it, I might add. <laughs> yeah, totally not necessary, but social norm, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's neat, though, that the conversation is is uh, is just being had about uh, the fact that it's not necessarily, it's not necessary, and many people feel better. What would yeah. you like to leave us with? I don't know. It's, it's uh, Actually, it's, uh, it's Skin Cancer Month, May. Um, so everybody, we did touch on sunscreen. I think it's, you know, there's sometimes con- there's been controversy about whether sunscreens are, are good or bad. They are, they help decrease the incidence of skin cancer. There's no debate in that. If you're worried about uh, sunscreen ingredients and their safety, because there has been some concern, we can't, we don't have time to go through that. Maybe another talk. Stick with mineral sunscreens, zinc and titanium only, and make sure you wear at least SPF 30. Avoid the sun between 11 and 3. Wear a hat, cover up, and have fun. On that note, one more question. If I'm using a cosmetic Mm -hmm. on my face with an SPF 30, is that enough? No, because uh, the teaspoon rule, right? You need at least a teaspoon of sunscreen for the face, and you're not going to put that in with a cosmetic. So you should put your sunscreen on first, and then your cosmetic over top. Dermatologist Dr. Sandy Scott Nicky, founding director of the Bay Dermatology Center. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As we waited on word from the provincial public health experts on the fate of AstraZeneca vaccine doses in this province, which came on Friday, Libya was joined on Thursday by Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, to talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine and the ongoing rollout of other COVID vaccines, including questions around second doses for older Ontario residents. They began their conversation about studies, including one here in Canada, on mixing doses of AstraZeneca with the mRNA vaccines, specifically Pfizer. Obviously, we're not early and uh, we will make all the decisions based on uh, trial data coming from Spain, the UK and potentially other regions in the world. There may still be questions that need to be asked. So I'm completely open for another trial there. Let's just not expect that it's Canadian data that will help. It doesn't need to be. We, We all behave the same biologically, so all will be okay. They're testing an interval of one month and an interval of four months. And they're not testing an interval of three months, which uh, uh, epidemiologists say certainly is recommended for AstraZeneca and some hypothesize is actually the best for the others. Yeah, well, you know, what we know now is that we have a three-month interval um, that actually worked really nicely. We know that already from the UK. Um, So if we now just generate more data, that's one of the questions that will be really interesting just to look at and just have 
one month versus four months, there, it allows us actually also to make indirect comparison. So I'm actually grateful for that part. Let's see what the sweet spot is. What is great is to know now that our original decision in Canada to go for first doses first was absolutely the right decision, not only to protect the population best, but it also just triggers better immune responses, which is great news. There are a lot of people at this point who are arguing that at this point, it makes a lot more sense to give older people who are more at risk, especially people over 80, their second dose rather than starting with with 12-year-old kids. Yeah, and I think that's a fair comment. We need to think about how to handle that best. So first of all, it's also not such a big population and a lot of 80 plus and also 75 plus uh, people out there probably are all already around 10 weeks after their shot or so. So we start to approach the sweet spot anyway, where they just will have an optimized immune response. And what we now just need to find, you know, in the discussions there is indeed just a really good way forward that we just perhaps go for 10 to 12 weeks um, after the uh, first dose that we actually bring the second dose aboard especially for people who now have uh, a decreased uh, immune response already. For people who are at, uh, beyond, above the age of 75 or 80, I'm completely in agreement with that. But, you know, there's the other part, which is we have quite a lot of vaccine doses and the population, you know, of 12 to 17-year-olds is actually not that big. So let's try to, have, to cover both as much as we can. And I don't think that we need to compromise that much. Well, you know, uh, I'm thinking, you know, some of the calls that I get here are really heartbreaking or, and, and really leave me shaking my head. And one that I remember from last Friday is a woman whose 97-year-old father lives at home. And I've heard from other people over 80 who are not costing the system a lot of money because they are still living in their homes. They get some help with home care. The home care will not give them any guarantee that uh, that the the people they send in are vaccinated, and meanwhile they're waiting for their second doses and saying why why is a twelve year old or a sixteen year old getting it before my ninety seven year old dad gets oh, shot number two? I completely agree with you with on that one. So you know people need support and the people live in congregate settings etc. Especially if they are you know at an age that makes them at really increased risk. They should get their second dose now really soon, you know, and then we, we probably will be somewhere between eight and 12 weeks. Somewhere in between that will just be OK. I completely agree with that part for sure, Libby. What would you like to leave us with as we head into the long weekend? I think the most important part is just enjoy yourselves outside, but do that safe. And to parents, I would say get vaccinated because we want to have our kids back in school. So we need you to be protected. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. On Friday, we learned the fate of the AstraZeneca vaccine doses in reserve. They will be given as second doses to Ontario residents who got their first AZ shot March 10th to March 19th, starting tomorrow, May 24th. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, day surgeries resume as COVID-19 hospitalizations decline. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There's been some good news for patients whose lives have been on hold while they've been waiting for elective surgery, surgeries that the provincial PCs paused a month ago. Elective in this context means not urgently life-threatening, and it includes cancer and heart surgery, among many other procedures. These surgeries won't start up again everywhere. They will be dependent on each hospital's capacity and limited to certain types of operations. This change in policy came just over a week after Dr. Robert Nam argued in a Globe and Mail editorial it made no sense to cancel day surgery. Dr. Nam is a professor of surgery at the University of Toronto and specializes in surgical treatment for patients with urologic cancers. He joined Libby on Thursday to discuss the reversal. I am certainly welcome the news of letting us proceed with ambulatory surgery, but you know, it still hasn't, uh, he hasn't taken the pressure completely off uh, our, our, our needs. It would be great if we could uh, do surgeries that required inpatient beds, but not the ICU. Uh, and that would tremendously help the backlog. I mean, when you're talking about day surgery, you still need the, you know, a few hours to recover, right? It's just not an overnight bed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are some hospitals, uh, like at Sunnybrook, where we do have what we call overnight beds or what we call short-stay units, which are not part of the inpatient unit where a COVID patient or a, a very ill patient would require. And uh, that's certainly something that I hope we could uh, use and other hospitals could utilize in that regard. So it does free up our ability to offer cancer surgery and non-cancer surgery to these patients. How many procedures? Do you have any kind of handle on that? Well, you know, it, it, I, I don't, uh, to uh, answer the question directly, uh, but uh, it all depends on uh, the specialty and the needs. Like, for example, cancer surgery, I would say at least more than half can be done on an ambulatory basis, but I couldn't give you uh, some uh, real numbers on that. Well, I mean, I have to say on on a personal note, I remember um, years ago when I had a lumpectomy, I mean, I went, I went home and cooked dinner. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and this is another point I made with the op-ed. Uh, we've been working for decades to try and improve efficiencies and improve how we do the surgery so that patients can recover much more quickly and don't need a hospital bed because certainly it's better to recover at home than it's uh, than it is to recover in the hospital and rightly or wrongly you know uh, due to budgetary restraints that the hospitals always have due to budget cuts we're always making efficiencies and using better techniques and so i really think that we can really get through this backlog uh, as soon as as they sort of release the uh, the dam, if you will, of letting us do surgery. It sounded like there would be a lot of discretion where each hospital could decide for itself what it can resume. Is that your take on it? Yes, absolutely. And it, you know, every uh, sort of Lynn, the hospital district. It has different pressures and different burdens of COVID rates. And so each, I think each hospital, uh, has, has, uh, the, uh more than enough, uh, ability capacity to determine what they can do and what they can't do, uh, what they can send out and not send out. So, uh, you know, again, it goes back to annual, uh, budget and cutbacks. 
they've been doing such a good job of, of dealing with the, these types of pressures. I think uh, letting uh, the hospitals try and manage it on their, uh, on their own abilities would be really important rather than having the province sort of just do a broad-based sort of policy like we've seen in the past. What about heart procedures like an angioplasty? That would be a day procedure. Yes, uh, and and these types of procedures don't necessarily require full anesthetic support. They're not done in the operating room, so it's not considered, quote-unquote, elective surgery. So I believe, and I don't know this for 100% because that's not my area, but the hospitals in Ontario are still able to provide that support, especially in the emergent and acute setting. Dr. Nam, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I just hope that uh, Dr. Williams and his team realize that a lot of procedures can be done without putting impact on the ICUs. And it's really the ICUs that are critical. And although the numbers uh, of ICU beds are decreasing, uh, that's COVID-related, you know, hospital admission rates are dropping at a much faster rate. Uh, And I would hope that they consider allowing the hospitals to do what they do best, to manage their resources, including inpatients, including the ambulatory surgeries, so that we can really attack this growing wait list. Dr. Robert Nam, professor of surgery at the University of Toronto, specialist in surgical treatment for patients with urologic cancers. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. This is National Road Safety Week, when we've learned that vehicle speed limits may be reduced to 30 kilometers an hour for certain neighborhoods in Toronto. Ward 4, Parkdale High Park, Ward 9, Davenport, and Ward 19, Beaches East York. If the changes go through, it would effectively complete the reduction of speed limits on all local roads in the Toronto and East York Community Council area to 30 kilometers an hour. It's all part of the city's Vision Zero 2.0 road safety plan. Libby Snymer was joined on Thursday by a panel of experts to discuss Dylan Reed, co-founder of Walk Toronto, Brian Patterson, President and CEO of the Ontario Safety League, and Constable Sean Shapiro of Toronto Police Traffic Safety Programs. Well, you know, the the reason for these is to really reduce those serious injury or death collisions. And we've seen a reduction this year. In fact, uh, we've had six deaths on our roads this year. And year to date, uh, uh, and last year, comparing it, we had 11. So we're seeing benefits. Brian Patterson, what's your take on it? Well, I think we've got a little bit of a combination. I, uh, uh, you know, I, I believe the big three E's, uh, engineering, enforcement, and uh, education are the key. Uh, and I think sometimes, uh, particularly with uh, community councils, that you want to get more, uh, more of the education and more of the engineering and not just the uh, local councillors. I think... Uh, for many years, speed bumps were the crack cocaine of local counselors getting them in on roadways they weren't required and adding other problems for other drivers. Oh, well, we've got some very, very good standards in Canada, and we've got some very good civil engineers. There's a lot of really good smart guy engineering going on there, and I think we should rely on them more than simply a bumper sticker approach that uh, uh, often comes up. Uh, when people are on a roadway that might be a, a main artery and has been a main artery 
for many, many years. So the speed is not uh, just in play. And then we can have a year like the last two years, where, as, as you uh, mentioned, Libby, some of the stats, it's hard to tell whether they're COVID reduction of volume or COVID increase in uh, bad driving habits that take place on uh, less congested roadways. Okay, Dylan Reed, what's your take? I mean, we're just talking local roads here. Um, and the city did do a study and they showed that the speed limit reductions did actually reduce the average speed that people were driving. So they do have some effect. And the, the reason we start with this is because it's quick and cheap. I mean, engineering is definitely something that we need. Um, but that costs money. It costs money to rebuild roads. Um, they only rebuild occasionally. So the idea of the speed reductions is to get something going now. Um, and like I said, it turns out it does actually work. And I think the key thing to remember with 30 kilometers an hour is that on a local road where, you know, people, kids might be playing or people might be crossing kind of casually, 30 kilometers an hour, most people don't get killed if they're hit by a car. Um, but once you go up to 40, you get about half people hit by a car. And once you go up to 50, most people are going to be killed if they're hit by a car. So the point of 30 kilometers an hour is really that it's something where even if there is an accident, and this goes to what um, uh, Constable was saying, people are not going to get killed. Um, so that's really the, the core goal. And, uh, you know, that's the first thing we need to do. And then we, enforcement and engineering are something we can follow up with to really uh, reinforce that change. Constable Shapiro, do you get a feeling that perhaps more people aren't aware or don't care about the rules of the road? Well, we can certainly attribute certain things to frustration, but I I think, moreover, uh, there has been uh, a a feeling or or a surge in in poor behavior. And we've seen that in terms of uh, charges of stunt driving and things of that nature, uh, where people are, I suppose, getting their thrills in other ways. In terms of just being uh, less courteous on the road, I don't think that's a a situation so much as uh, we're all going through this, and it's affecting people differently. But going specifically to poor driving behavior, yeah, there's been a tremendous increase in certain behaviors, uh, speed being one of them, stunt, uh, stunt driving. We've seen a tremendous increase. Uh, so that's uh, where our Vision Zero enforcement team has been uh, doing great work, going into specific areas and doing enforcement. But we've also done a lot of outreach in terms of education and uh, using social media through our, uh, I suppose, new ways pivoting to to accommodate Uh, the lockdown and the fact that we can't see people in person as easily. Constable Sean Shapiro of Toronto Police Traffic Safety Programs, Dylan Reed, co-founder of Walk Toronto, and Brian Patterson, president and CEO of the Ontario Safety League. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. David in Oakville phoned about our segment on reducing speed limits. The last year, because of COVID, I ended up having to uh, become a school bus driver. And one of the things that uh, they do, obviously, is through that training, it, it really opens your eyes, you know, to 
to driving in mind, you have to give yourself lots of time in order to um, lower the chance of, uh, of, of having an accident, of being able to stop on time, etc. And I think that fundamentally that I, I do like the idea of lowering those speed limits. But I think what's got to happen is I think we all just need to go back to school. And I think that the, uh, the driving tests... Even for old guys like me, we need to go back to school and take them on a regular basis, you know, because there just needs to be an attitude adjustment. People don't understand that if you're driving 30K in a parking lot, you've got no chance of stopping and you're going to hurt somebody. Um, but everybody does it because it doesn't feel when you're sitting in a modern car, you have no idea how fast 30K is, you know? Ron in Guelph talked about taking fewer showers a popular segment this past week on Fight Back. When I was driving my bus, I've gone from four times a week. Um, years ago, I had a dermatologist tell, tell me, stop showering every day. It's not yeah. good for your skin. Yeah. So yeah, we tell this um, all, we say this all with the time. The hair, um, uh, yeah. Don't wash your hair every day. It's, 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 it's bad for your hair. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I shower at least... Now I'm down to twice a week, and <laughs> unless good. I have to go out somewhere where I'm meeting people, and then sometimes just three times a week. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lily in Pickering, who phoned with a question many of us have had this last week about the 45,000 doses of AstraZeneca COVID vaccine in reserve here in Ontario, which are soon to expire. Again, it's the AstraZeneca uh, vaccines are stored. Apparently, there's uh, some in reserve and due to expire at the end of the month. Why are they not rushing to get these, these vaccines out as second doses? Lily, we got some good news on Friday when we learned that those AstraZeneca doses will be used for second shots starting on Monday for people who got a first shot between March 10th and March 19th. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.